Welcome to RPPR. This is Roleplaying Public Radio, episode 196. What RPGs can learn from board games? Uh, as I'm subjecting a, a new person, well, uh, not not person new to me, but like uh, this is maybe your first time listening, hearing the announcer voice. Uh, how how are you doing, uh, James? Uh, our, That's our- a disconcerting <laughs> voice. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. This is James Wallace. He is uh, my co-host on another podcast called Ludo Narrative Dissidents. Uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about what RPGs can learn from board games, um, as uh, James knows a little bit about them. Uh, but yeah, the announcer voice is a longstanding RPPR tradition, uh, and uh, my uh, partner, Maddie, has uh, uh, banned me from using it in private. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I, I bet. <laughs> but yeah, um, so before we get into... Uh, why we're talking about board games, I think just a little bit of update on the RPPR front. Uh, it it has been a few months since I've done an episode. I've been kind of busy with a lot of other projects uh, that should be coming out soon, uh, including one uh, for Arc Dream. Uh, but that'll be announced in a little bit. But uh, on the Patreon front, we our newest After Hours episode is quite funny because we're talking about the most horrifying spells of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you know, speak with animals is you're basically flowers for Algernoning a little rat. Uh, and that's terrifying if you think about it. Like, why? How could a, giving a rat human speech capabilities is just, just kind of a bad thing to do to an innocent little rat in a dungeon? Uh, but uh, yeah, so Baz and David and I can talk about that. Uh, also in Recommendizer, where we talk about media recommendations for particular genres or games, Thad and I talk about zombie apocalypse media recommendations uh, with the gimmick that there are, these are all books that are not about zombies. Uh, so sociology, history, riot medicine, uh, there's a whole lot of interesting stuff. And uh, Delta Green, Impossible Landscapes, uh, will be going up, on, our first episode will be going up on Early Access uh, on April 26th, and then be going up on the public feed uh, the week, in the first week of May. So uh, I know a lot of you have been waiting for us to do that campaign since it came out a couple years ago, but I finally got the perfect group for it. Uh, we already have campaign art of it up on the Patreon uh, of a poster of uh, uh, our four agents uh, and their good friend Gary as they investigate the McAllister building and all the horrors that the King and Yellow can bring to bear on them. Um, so yeah, uh, check out the RPVR Patreon if you haven't already, and uh, you can get if you if you once you're done listening to this, there's we have so much more to show you. Um, but, uh, as I mentioned, this episode is uh, about what RPGs can learn from board games. And um, I, I thought about this episode because, uh, again, you know, uh, uh, James uh, and I have been co-hosting Ludo Narrative Dissidents now for like two years. Uh, boy, time flies. <laughs> and it really does. It really does. And uh, James has recently come out with a book. Uh, and uh, Tell us about the book and how it's relevant to this discussion. Sure. The book is called Everybody Wins, Four Decades of the Greatest Board Games Ever Made. And it's basically, it's a history of the rise of modern board games since the late 70s up to the present day, seen through the lens of the Spiel des Jahres, which is the German Game of the Year Award. Um, and you may ask, why why a German award? It's because it's massive. It's, it's one of the biggest consumer awards, actually, in terms of its economic effect. Hmm. 
compared to its reputation. I mean, it's if you win the spiel, you will your game will sell somewhere between two hundred thousand and half a million extra copies in the next year. Oh my and God. that I don't know if you've heard of the the Booker Prize for fiction. It's just, mm-hmm. which is the, possibly next to the Nobel Prize, the biggest prize for for fiction in the world. Booker Prize does about half those numbers. So yeah. the spiel is huge. Um, yeah. And for a long time, it was mostly known in Germany. But, you know, you basically you won the spiel. That was your career made. Mm-hmm. And most of the games that have won the spiel over the last 44 years, it was set up in 1979, have gone on to be instrumental in this, this explosion of the modern board game form. A lot of them never quite made it out of Germany, particularly the early ones, the foundational ones. But the moment you get to the mid-90s, almost halfway through, with Catan, Catan was the one that blew the doors off the international market um, by the late, great Klaus Teuber. Mm. He, we're recording this in uh, mid-April. He died at the start of April, very, very sadly, um, aged 70, but, you know, uh, uh, long before his time. Mm-hmm. Um, but from that point on, you these are games that if you're into board games at all, or even if you're not, you will probably have heard of Ticket to Ride or Carcassonne or Codenames or Just One or, or games like that. These are games that have gone on to be massive international successes. Catan has sold 30 million copies now. Uh, Ticket to Ride, I think, is up to about 18 million. It's, I mean, these are stunning numbers. These are num- numbers that challenge video games yeah. in, in terms of, of success. And they're board games. You know, who thought board games would be interesting um, or who would be commercially interesting in, in that kind of, of way? Those of us who have been into board games for as long as I have, and I am an <laughs> old man. Um, you know, we've always known that there was something there. But doing the book was fascinating because I thought it would just basically be 44 articles on each of the games and kind of going, well, this one was significant this year because... But very quickly, it becomes about not just the games, it becomes about the mechanics and the creators and how each game has influenced each following game and how the acts, basically, it it dissolves into kind of acts and sequences. Mm -hmm. And we break everything down into four main chunks um, and and how the, the whole form grows. And I took that lens and looked at role-playing games. And I, I I may write a lot about board games, but I'm fundamentally a, a role-playing designer. When I think about game design, I think about role-playing games. Um, I've been writing stuff about role-playing games professionally since the mid-'80s when I was still at school mm-hmm. um, for magazines like like White Dwarf. So that's my, my first love. Yeah. And uh, – sorry, I'm, I'm just talking. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in full flow. Do by all means ask me a question. Um, well, yeah, a couple of comments. One, um, the 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 interlink interlinking of relationships between like games and their influence on other games and other designers uh, is something I've been thinking about l- a lot lately. Uh, just sort of a, um, just a, you know, you, you of course, yeah, I I was sort of sparked that I watched this video of a fifth ed D and D designer uh, who shall go nameless, but like he talked about, oh, I'm I'm making up my own version of D and D. It's going to be better, and uh, and we're re-looking at all the rules. For example, I'm looking at armor, and why does armor make it you harder to hit? It should reduce damage and impair your mobility. And I'm just like, oh my god, my my friend, please, you 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 just RuneQuest exists. Yeah. It exists decades ago. Like, 
We have um, literally been talking about this stuff since the late 70s. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't, but yes, yeah. this conversation has been going on that long. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and people are making millions of dollars on Kickstarter doing, mm-hmm. I'm going to do a stripped down D&D. We're going to take out the stuff. <laughs> just the other day, another one funded. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, um, I don't, I mean, on one level, I'm glad this is happening. I'm mm-hmm. glad there is an appetite for new designs. On on another, it's I, do we have to have the same conversation over and over? Again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is one. Of, this is one of the things that board games didn't do. They basically they embrace new mechanics and and new ideas. There's no nostalgia in the in the wider board game market. Yes, oh. Monopoly still sells. You oh, know, yeah. still arguably the biggest board game um, in in the world. Hasbro are reluctant to release figures on that, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, in terms of market presence, it's still there, and it's a hundred. It's more over a hundred years old. Yeah. It was originally created um, under the name the uh, the Landlords Game by a mm-hmm. woman called Elizabeth McGee, who essentially had the design stolen from her mm-hmm. by Clarence Darrow, who's the chap who was for a long time acknowledged as the creator of Monopoly. What he did mostly was change the name, yeah, um, and and take it back to Parker Brothers, who had released, who had refused it previously when McGee pitched it to her, but you know. Clarence Darrow goes in and they go, oh, a lovely middle-class white man. Of course we will accept your board. Uh, I don't know what the conversation was, yeah, yeah. but I suspect sexism may well have had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so there is a certain nostalgia for, for the old, but at the same time within board games, there has been this appetite for for new mechanics. It's not the cult of the new, yeah. Um, although there, there's an element of that, but it has been people going, are there better ways of doing this? Are there more fun ways of doing this? And a lot of it, and I teach board game design as well. I run workshops. I used to teach at at university level until quite recently. Um, The whole design process is, is referred to as finding the fun, the iterative process of you design something, you test it, you think about how it went, you change the design based on feedback. Then you uh, you know then you test it again, and that iterative process is is known colloquially as finding the fun, because you can't sit down and deliberately design fun into a board game. Fun doesn't work that way. You have to find it. You have to look for it. You have to identify it, amplify it if you can. And yeah. this is something that I don't see so much in the mainstream of role playing yeah. design. Um, I mean, there there is. We almost have our analog for Monopoly. Dungeons and Dragons is very much like that. It yeah. does change. It you know Monopoly does change. There's Monopoly Deal. There's a bunch of new Monopolies, um, and they do play a bit bar- better. They play faster. They play uh, the rules are, are less onerous, um, and you know. But it's still fundamentally Monopoly in the same way that D and D is always and fundamentally D and D. Yeah. I, nothing else. Time, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's you know, it it has its flow. It's interesting for a game mm-hmm. with with no background, no. Well, I suppose the Sword Coast and all the rest of it has kind of become the official background, but no, there's none of that in the rule books. Yeah, um, you buy Monopoly, uh, you buy Dungeons and Dragons. There was a Dungeons and Dragons Monopoly. I'm sure they may have been. Several. Oh, there's there's a oh. branded version of Monopoly for everything. It's like one for Fortnite oh. now. Like. I'm sure it's out there, especially because with the D and D movie out this year. Like, I'm sure there's yeah. Like a whole well, I was, I was going to say if yeah. if you went to see the D and D movie and you loved that, and you went, what are all these places that I've I've heard of? Where's that spectacular prison? Mm-hmm. You know, the the city, all the rest of it. What's the Underdark? Um, and you buy the three D and D books thing. You know, literally, there's half a thousand pages here. Got to be in there somewhere. <laughs> Not a mention of the th- possibly somewhere lurking in the monster manual. But yeah. 
it's it's weirdly flavorless yeah but then you look out to the you know the story games and and the avant-garde stuff and the stuff that people are just throwing up on itch and the ideas that are coming out of that mm-hmm. and the cross fertilization of that is very much what happened in the kind of the the cambrian period of the board game explosion as well where people were throwing out new ideas coming up with some really elaborate and clever new things some of which caught on in a, in a big way ideas like card drafting and some of which didn't at all and uh, and have disappeared i have in my collection not one but two separate german board games which contained rocks as games components actual rocks in the box <laughs> and and this was a short-lived trend and yeah. has not re- not reappeared so far as i can tell yeah um so but you don't know if it's going to work in the market until you try it mm-hmm. and and that's one of the things i find really exciting about where we are in role-playing right now there is so much going on so much variety you know you want a game for anything mm-hmm. you can find if not the game itself then a system that will allow you to model that in some kind of way yeah. um it's it's really great and the mechanics as well we're stripping down the stuff from you know the massive massive rule books of of D. some people go the other way into you know 500 page rule books yeah but well, there's so much stuff that's really Boiling it down to, you know, the, the fad for one-page, two-page RPGs, Honey Heist, the success of Honey Heist, mm-hmm. which I, if, if people don't know it, it's basically you're a bear and you're doing a robbery, mostly for honey. And that's kind of go. That's basically the whole pitch for the game. And as long as you understand the basic way that a role-playing game works, you're going to have fun with it. And it's not meant to be a campaign game. It's meant to be wasting an hour making jokes with your mates game. But it's proven that there is, there's a space in the market for that. Yeah. Uh, no, for sure. There is a, a, a huge amount of variety and demand for different styles of games because as much as the D&D, you know, uh, uh, makers, you know, want to assume that the, you only need one game to do everything. It, in fact, it turns out having a rule set that uh, accommodates different styles of play or like different goals uh, can be a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, you bring up some good points of talking about like what, you know, as a role playing game is getting together to tell a story versus uh, what I kind of see, like a lot of board games are there's sort of two modes of them, like one, like role playing games are very much focused on storytelling, right? Usually in, in mm-hmm. some way. And but board games, you know, they may a lot of them obviously have narrative elements, but ultimately they're like puzzle solving in a sense, like you're, you're trying to optimize, you're trying and and this. And of course, you know, a lot of board games are competitive versus and although some are, you know, collaborative, but it's like role playing games are collaborative storytelling versus collaborative or competitive puzzle solving or optimization or efficiency, uh, uh, basically figuring out um you know, and obviously because board games are so huge, there are ones that are just like, let's tell a story. And then there are ones that are basically like D and D, but with more grid and better combat rules like Gloomhaven. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating, um, to it, it, look at, really examine, is. examine the two and see what, uh, the differences are. Like uh, the other day I was, I watched this horror movie trailer and I immediately thought of a, a an RPG idea for it. And I realized, Oh, it's like a worker placement RPG. Like if you, you, everyone picks like one thing to help them fight the evil monster or whatever that they're all being stalked by. But if you like choose my gimmick was that like, if you choose to be the occult expert, you know, you know more about the occult, you're the goth or whatever, then everyone else is 
worse at it. No one else can mm-hmm. be good at a cult. Or if you're the that's, you're, you're that's you, the mechanic we used in Paranoia. Yeah, uh, I did the I did with Grant mm-hmm. Howitt, who did Honey Heist, and Paul Dean, the the games reviewer. We did the the Paranoia reboot of a few years ago, mm-hmm. and that's basically the character generation system. One player, you name your skill, and um, Everyone. the player next to you is is then negative at it. And then oh, I can't okay. remember if we did the thing because it's based on a mechanic I came up with for a game I never actually published about mm. cop shows. But the idea was one person names a skill, they are automatically the best in it. The player next to you is automatically the worst in it. <laughs> and then everyone else can't take that skill at all. They're just average. And so you, once you've gone around the table two or three times, you've got this really interesting party with a lot of variety, mm-hmm. but with specialists and weaknesses as well. And it works really well. It's, mm. it's, and it's not complex in terms of, of rules. And thinking back to the stuff that we've looked at in uh, Ludonarrative Dissidents, mm-hmm. some of the games there, there was one game that took five pages to explain the initiative system. You, you don't <laughs> need that. People get it. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, there is a market for that level of complexity. Um, but I really, I don't think, I think, you know, if you want to do that, put it in a supplement. Complexity, and again, this is one of the things that comes out of board game, mm-hmm. board games. Uh, there's a quote, I've, I started using it, and then people started, you know, established designers started using it as well. So clearly it kind of occupies the thing. It's from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince mm-hmm. during World War II. Um, and he said, perfection is achieved not when there is nothing left to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. Mm. And for me, that's the essence of games design. It's stripping out and stripping down and paring things down to the bare minimum of the rules that you need to create the effect you want. Yeah. You don't create good systems and good rules by piling on more complexity. Yeah. You create the effect by stripping it back. So, you know, so it's, you know, you've almost taken away the rules and you've just left the structure. Yeah. And, and I think that, that's what RPGs yeah. often miss is that um, yes. there's not like you, you were talking about earlier about finding the fun. And I think that like, um, because I, you know, one thing I had no idea that like board games, especially, you know, being an award winning one would, you know, have six digits of additional unit sales. Uh, so mm. uh, obviously there's more money and more discipline into it than RPGs, which are often a hobbyist uh, thing. There's very few, designers who make a full time well, designing RPGs. Um, sadly, the, yeah. the same is true of board games as well. Oh, really? I mean, it, it wasn't really until the nineties that there were prof- any professional board game designers in, in Germany. Still, the number is, is, is pretty small. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast majority of people out there are doing it as a hobby or even running companies as a hobby. Hmm. Because so, okay. I mean, yeah. And, and this has always been true of role-playing games back in the mid nineties. I set up a company called Hogshead Publishing which quite quickly became the largest RPG publisher in the UK, not least because for a while we were the only (laughs) RPG, because it was very easy for RPG publishers to set up and go bust because there were no other companies they could turn to for advice in the UK. I had been freelancing in the States for a while, so I could talk to John Nephew of Atlas Games. I could talk to Kevin Simbida at Palladium. Um, I did a couple of books for Palladium, my first professional games writing, games book writing. Um, and, you know, people have strong opinions about Palladium and, oh boy. and its output. But Comments under here at RPPR. I bet, but Kevin knows the business, and yeah. he knows the practicalities, and his advice was just invaluable. Uh, I worked a lot with Eric Wujic of, of Phage Press, who did uh, Amber Diceless. 
people like that I could turn to for advice. And they their assistance was what allowed Hogshead to to become the, the largest company of its type in the UK. Mm-hmm. And at its at its peak, uh, I, I sold it in 2002, 2003. But at its peak, it had two and a half full-time employees and I wasn't one of them. I was working a full-time job in magazines because it paid much better. Mm. Um, and, you know, and was then employing young people who were prepared to take a not great salary to, to you know, get some experience in the role-playing industry, some of whom have, you know, gone on to, to be significant, mm-hmm. um, you know, to make a reputation for, the, for themselves, uh, some in academia, some in, in reviewing. Um, but yeah, a, an awful lot of companies that from the outside look like they are operations, are actually, you know, one or two guys working out of a garage or a, a spare bedroom in their spare time. My my game, The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen, was written while I was commuting. It was written on my knee on a little palm top computer. If you remember palm tops from the <laughs> late nineties, the Scion Five, amazing piece of technology. Um, and literally grabbed and kind of, if I could get a seat on the tube, I'd get thirty minutes of writing time on the way into work. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of that. There really is. Yeah, I think um, so. It's interesting. Not even a question of like you know, money, then it's, it's just, uh, I, I, I want to say like, why do board game designers spend so much time playtesting versus RPG designers who are often are, you know, and this is not like just, I think this is a systemic issue in RPGs where like even the big dogs, even the big publishers of RPGs, uh, don't play test the games as much as they should. They don't spend as much time finding the fun to revise their rules um to get the get that sweet balance i'm not saying obviously all rpgs but there's i mean we've all read big releases like boy this wasn't this was barely (laughs) boy there's some big problems in this uh uh, uh, set of rules like this does not make a lot of sense um so i wonder why that is because i mean maybe it's because of the nature of rpgs like rpgs are collaborative and a good game master often game designers are very experienced at running games uh can paper over a problem through you know good storytelling, knowing the individual table. Uh, and in a board game, you just have the game, right? There's no, there's, there are the rules and there are the components and you follow these rules to play the game. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Uh, I, I think you've, I think you've hit it exactly oh, okay. there. Yeah. It's, I mean, GM and players will often collaborate because they're enjoying the story. They're enjoying the experience to disguise the fact that the rules aren't quite having the desired effect. Whereas as a board game is, is much more, straight up the thing is on the table in front of you uh one of the reasons i used board games a lot when i was teaching game design is because you know with video games it's like trying to explain a car's engine with the hood down (laughs) you can't see the inner workings Mm -hmm. you can hear them ticking Mm -hmm. you know you think oh is that a cylinder misfiring no in a board game it's very very obvious where it's not working and there is always that temptation to just keep tweaking and tre- keep going for improvement. Mm-hmm. But a role-playing game, at least what we think of as a commercial role-playing game, is a much, much more complicated system than most board games. There's so many rules. A lot of them don't get used every session or oh, yeah. you know, every campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, so, yeah. That, that's true. Like, uh, uh, you know, uh, we were just as I talking earlier, running this Delta Green campaign, and I've run, you know, dozens of sessions um, – over the years and in this campaign, new rules that have been in the, the player handbook since it came out in like, you know, 2015 are the first time I'm actually reading or actually paying attention to them because it's like, 
you know, agents got wounded and then they have to recover. And usually when I run Delta Green, they're just dead and the game is over. Like, oh, wait, they have recovery times and they can there's all these other things that come up <laughs> because they have this lingering injury that is hindering them. And uh, yeah, and I'm yeah. glad th- this is a case where they did play test it because it like it made sense and it was thematic for the game. But like that could have been easily overlooked and, uh, you know, had a agent with a, you know, gut shot just running around doing parkour uh, with no problems and um, which would have yeah. not made sense. So um, that's <laughs> yeah, the, the the sheer I mean, yeah, with a RPG also, you usually try to tell much more. It's a much more versatile game system, except for the very yes. most focused thing like Honey Heist. Extremely focused, but that's the exception, not the rule. Like, mm. Yeah. Um, yes, unless you're looking at stuff like the one that springs to mind is Monster Hearts. Avery Older's just brilliant, brilliant game mm. of, of teenage monster romance. Um, and it's it's based on the Powered by the Apocalypse system, but she does so much with it, and mm-hmm. it's really, really smart. But it's very, very focused on that idea of, of you are essentially young monsters falling in love with, you know, huge emotions, but also huge desires because you're monsters, you know, <laughs> werewolves got a wolf and, and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Vampires got a suck blood. It's, it's great. And it has that focus and the rules absolutely reflect that. Mm. Um, the other one I'd, I'd call out particularly is um, microscope. Which oh, is not really yeah. a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. It's a world-building game or a history-building game. Mm-hmm. Really simple, sleek system. And there are bits of role-play in there as you get as you get down to it. Yeah. Where you know you're collaboratively building a history of a thing by adding incidents, but you can choose to put new incidents in between things that other people have, have established, or you can drill down into them, go into further depth about what happened. And again, it's the rules create an effect. The actual, all of the narrative comes from the players. Mm-hmm. There's no setting for this thing. The setting is completely up to you. But the structure of it is really, really tight. And that, I think, again, that's where something where board games can inform role-playing games. I mean, like... Particular. Look for a, t- a tight structure for controlling the narrative, mm. which is kind of... I mean, D&D shies away from that quite oh, a lot. Yeah. The tight structure in D&D is around combat. Mm-hmm. you know, And still, these days, the vast majority of, of the, the rule books are concerned either directly or indirectly with fighting things mm-hmm. uh, or, or destroying things or blowing stuff up yeah. uh, with or without magic. <laughs> well, usually with magic, let's be honest. D&D, usually with magic. D and D does have this kind of like systemic like bias against like martial and rogue classes, especially in later yes. edition. Well, like fourth edition was fairly balanced, but fifth edition has gone back to like the third edition. Like, <laughs> screw you, Jax. But um <laughs> it, I mean that again, my my just my opinion. But um yeah, Microsoft actually I played that recently. Uh, I played it several times now, and uh it's almost like a board game in a lot of respects because you use note cards kind of like build out a timeline, right? And uh, mm. you can go vertically or horizontally across this timeline to go into more depths in certain areas, eras, uh, or into, into uh, individual scenes. Um, so yeah, that's actually a storytelling game that is like blurs the line between what is a board game and an RPG because mm. it, it is very, it, it relies on spatial relations between the cards. Like, you know, there is a timeline, yeah. um, and then you go, drill down into certain uh, events to get into very particular moments. Um, and yeah, that's obviously a game that was playtested quite. I mean, I, it seems like it was playtested quite extensively to get mm-hmm. to that level because it is such a con- very solid uh, uh, set of rules. Um, but yeah, I, I um, 
yeah, there remind, there's another storytelling game uh, I have I've read, but I haven't played yet called Dialect, which also uses note cards oh. um, about building up a language, a dialect of a, a, a small group, uh, an isolated you know community, and how that language is that dialect is born and how it dies, you know. Uh, oh, over time. Yes, uh, yes, I have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. now uh, you describe it. Yeah, uh, it's very cool. I, I I really want to play it sometime, but like I got it right before the pandemic. I just haven't brought it to yeah, and so it's like oh well, we're it, it relies on note cards. So I'm not going to play in cards, and I'm not going to use this for a while. Uh, and now I'm getting back into to to playing games uh, in person, so I might break it out at some point. But I mean, I think that's uh, 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 you know, and these are elements in using cards and like how they relate to each other on a table is something. Uh, it's just one example of like I think RPGs can learn from boards. I mean, you mentioned D and D, and obviously that is you know a lot of D and D is also uses space because it uses like a grid. It uses maps and like minis mm. and especially in later editions. Um, yes. And very, yeah. very much came out of the tradition of wargaming and was mm-hmm. designed by a couple of oh, yeah, gamers yeah. Yeah. who, you know, we were used to all of those conventions and has never quite shucked that off. Mm-hmm. It's still at its heart, you know, all its terminology and things like initiative, which we talk about, we have an entire <laughs> episode of, of the narrative dissonance talking mm-hmm. about initiative systems. Um, and all of that, and, and, you know, even hit points and armor classes come straight out of war games. Um, still at heart, an awful lot of RPGs are rooted, whether the designers know it or not, rooted in the war game tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think as soon as, as designers start looking at really what they've got and going, do we need this stuff? Do we need this baggage? We can do more. And again, this was what catapulted board games forward, the fact that people felt that they could they could leave the past behind. You know, they could take what they wanted from old designs, but they didn't have to take the whole thing. They didn't have to be constrained by boards. They mm-hmm. didn't have to be constrained by dice. Um, they could do really whatever they wanted. The moment you make that jump, you don't have to shuffle cards and deal them out. There are other ways of distributing cards. That There are better ways of distributing cards to players. The moment you realize that, you are free and you will find yourself creating really interesting types of games. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to flash back to 1998 when I did The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, which I was talking to a, a friend about recently, which was essentially the first story game. It's the first short form, uh, both in terms of page count. The original was only 24 pages, but it's a single session role playing game. It's GM-less, it's very much rules-light and story-heavy, and it's heavy on the humor. Um, and actually, it only has a page of rules. The The rule book was padded out to 24 pages because you can't sell one page of rules, or at least you couldn't in 1998, <laughs> which, you know, is pre the ebook market, pre almost pre-PDFs, certainly pre-much e-commerce. Um, and I was running a commercial company at the time. The thing is, when I published Baron, uh, Baron Munchausen, the reason I did it was because I've been running Hogshead at that point for four years, which was a company I set up largely to publish my own games designs at a couple of friends. Um, and that hadn't happened for commercial reasons. <laughs> we'd, we'd had to, because we got screwed by a couple of distributors and were in hock to the bank, I had to just focus on Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which was our, our you know, breadbasket, basically, our, our moneymaker uh, under license from Games Workshop. You know, paid off our bank loans, all the rest of it. And it was like, I'm going to do a game with my name on it. If it kills me, I don't care if it's only 24 pages. I don't care if nobody buys it. I'm just going to do this thing. And had this idea 
I did not realize that this was a radical jump forward, that nobody had done anything quite like this before. But I'd been mucking around with kind of improvisational games and improvisational drama a lot. And there was some of this stuff had been just part of the vernacular of the, uh, the circles of British role-playing designers that I had moved in, um, really, since the 80s. Mm-hmm. So for me, it didn't feel like a big jump forward. It's just nobody had published this stuff before. So, yeah, it's there is an element of, you know, free your mind and, and your ass will follow. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> free your mind and your design will follow. I, I, I think um, read widely, play games widely, play board games. Look at what they're doing with mechanics. See if you can take some of those mechanics and build them into your take your role playing game. Um, you know, not in the same way that there are role playing games. The majority of role playing games are based on war games. Mm-hmm. I think there's an awful lot that one can learn from the modern narrative board games that. I've been influenced by D&D, but also influenced by the German school of very stripped-down mechanics designs. I think people can learn lessons from st- about how to tell stories with games mm-hmm. from that kind of stuff and build that back into role-play, and role-playing games will be stronger as a result. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I, I, I think you're right, because um, as an example, I was uh, talking to my friend Caleb, you know, uh, Stokes, the author of mm. Mark. Oh, yeah, yeah. And... Um, you know, we both played Gloomhaven, and uh, it, as we were talking, he just casually brought up the idea that someone should make, like, I really like what Gloomhaven did with uh, randomization, where in Gloomhaven, you don't roll dice. Um, you mm. get a little deck of cards that have numbers on them, and these range from, like, you know, absolute miss to critical hit. And um, you, as you improve your character, you actually make changes to that deck. You actually remove the bad. You can choose to remove bad cards or add in new cards or even ah. uh, better cards that have like uh, like, oh, you not just hit you do elemental damage or you slow them, you know, depending mm. on what what, you know, like the rogue would be adding poison or the, you know, the elemental shaman would be adding ice damage or whatever. Um, and uh, that would be, uh, you know, and th- I was making a joke. Oh, well, that's true. You know, with print on demand cards, you could just knock something like out in fifth ed. Want to do a Kickstarter? Do really well? It's like, <laughs> no, Ross, you'd have to play test. It'd have to be balanced. We'd have to go through a lot of changes to think about the numbers. And like, uh, he was like, nah, just one through 20 done and uh, add some <laughs> art on it. And uh, the, 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 some people would eat it up. Um, but I think, I mean, that would be one example of that mm. uh, is that kind of yeah. deck building element uh, instead of like dice. Uh, but like, I guess, and we already talked about worker placement as an idea uh, for the yeah. RPGs, but like, what are some other mechanics, I guess, in board games that you think would be really applicable uh, to uh, RPG designs? Um Ah, now you're putting me on the spot. I do think deck, I think deck building is very underused in mm-hmm. RPGs, um, and I think some people are reluctant to do cards. And cards are logistically difficult, and it's mm-hmm. difficult to store cards, particularly between sessions. Um, uh, I mean, to be honest, if if I knew, I would be designing those games right now. <laughs> um, I, you yeah. know, I'm still active as a designer, and there's there's stuff I'm I'm pulling out. I'm um, the thing I'm still I'm noodling on two or three designs at, at the moment, um, but one of them is oh, and this was it was going to be one of the projects we published at Hogshead and mm. never happened because we had no money to do it at the time. It was called Frap. It's now I now call it Dandy, mm. um, and it's it's a fantasy role playing game set in your your absolutely bog standard 
fantasy world with elves and dwarves and dragons and dungeons and treasure and, and stuff, except that a thousand years ago, three colossal books, each as thick as a man stands tall, fell from the sky and were discovered by a group of, of wandering, extremely belligerent and very devout monks mm-hmm. who recognized the, uh, as what they could only be, which is the word of the gods. Mm. These are the message that the god has sent the people. And so they spent a, a century deciphering the books. Um, and the books are the book of da- the books of dandy, because if you haven't got the joke, think about the word dandy and how close that is to the initials D and D. <laughs> They're the D and D rule books. Hey, they have fallen. So you zoom forward nine hundred years, you have a society in which everybody absolutely believes that they are a character or possibly a non-player character in a game of D and D being played by the gods, and this is enforced with a fist of steel by the church, who has founded this entire religion on this. So everyone has a character sheet, and everyone has an alignment. And if you are found without your character sheet, then you're a non-player character, or possibly a monster, and you can be killed for the experience points. And it's this colossal Baroque thing. So obviously the the mechanics of Dandy are Mm -hmm. basically the D&D mechanics. But then it's got this other system of mechanics by which the world actually works. Because the way the world works and the world, the way the books say the world works are completely different. Magic, for example, works in such a way that there are seventh and eighth level wizards and sorcerers who actually can't cast a single spell because, you know, their character sheet says they can, but they don't actually understand how magic works whatsoever. So the mechanics I have for the way the world works are really quite board game influenced. They're much more, much more granular, much more simple. Um, people don't have hit points at all. They have lives in the way that cat, cats do, uh, except you're never quite sure how many you've got left. Um, and uh, things like that. So it's much more aimed at storytelling. It's a much more of a narrative system rather than something descended from a simulationist war game. Mm. And I'm having so much fun going back to that. I left it every every five or ten years. I go back to it and go, is the time right? But I think right now with the D&D movie and people going, oh, Dungeons & Dragons is the way that all role-playing games are. It's like, no, no, <laughs> we must, we must un- you know, yeah, this, is, yeah. this is me undermining the foundations of the Wizards of the Coast Castle. <laughs> uh, you know, my little act of sabotage, mm-hmm. dandy. Um, whether I'll actually get it out this time, I, I don't know, but I'm having a lot <laughs> of fun with it. Yeah. But that is, you know, I'm, I'm pulling in a lot of my influences from, from mm-hmm. German board games. Um, to to inform the mechanical design of of that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, so much fun. Yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, yeah, coming up with mechanic novel game mechanics on the fly is is kind of a steep challenge. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, looking at a uh, uh, list of just types of board game, common board game mechanics, we I realized we already talked about some games like this, like on Lotter Narrative Distance. Um, the episode isn't uh like dexterity games like dread literally uses jenga mm. so uh that that's obviously uh in there um obviously dice pooling systems are are very common in role playing games um and yeah. uh I, I but i kind of want to see um certain other types of uh because i i you know kind of maybe it would be a better way to look at this is like if i ex- mention a type of board game mechanic like what mm-hmm. kind of RPG could go with that as, as sort of like okay. a thought exercise. So like the first one I think is the most like Euro board game thing, which is of course auction mechanics. Um, mm. So where everyone makes bids on, you know, various resources or things like that. Uh, and 
you know, you, you only have so much money and there's only, you know, there's thing, you know, power grid, obviously, uh, tons of games, uh, castle, Mad King Ludwig, uh, tons and tons of games use auction mechanics. So, Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, Reiner Knizia is the, the great master, uh, modern art, mm-hmm. probably the great auction game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been done in RPGs, the Amber Diceless game. I mentioned Eric Wujek. It's a diceless RPG. So there's your character generation has no random factors at all. And if you don't know Amber, the idea is you're all members of the same family, and it's a warring family. You're all, you're all kind of siblings of the same generation. You hate each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being best in a particular attribute is auctioned off. And ah, it, it's, so it's okay. not that you've got the most points. It's that you are best. That's what you want to win the auction because you will be the best in the family or in that generation in a particular area. And... What it does is it, it's not just really clever and a really interesting diceless way of doing this, mm-hmm. but it also sets up competition between the characters, the slight resentment that the second best has for the <laughs> for the best. Before you've even started role-playing, before you've started, you know, you've really fleshed out your characters, there's already that dynamic between them, that, that you know, the tensions between the, the different players. It's really nice. It's really clever. And I can't think of anyone else who's used it, yeah. which is such a shame. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Um, that would, oh man, now I'm trying to think about it. Yeah, that, that would be my obvious thing, would be like you're, it's an intrigue-focused game. Um, mm. where you're, yes, where, one where the players, the, the yeah. characters start off know, already within a, the dynamics of a, a fairly complicated relationship. I think um, maybe yeah. maybe maybe a version of an auction mechanic that's between the players uh, and the GM, and uh, the idea is the players are ostensibly working together, but everyone has like a secret agenda. Um, you know, you mm. could do this as any number of things. They're they're all supposed to work together, but there's a tension um, between yeah. them, and the players and the GM or the GM and the players are all auctioning off various things that will or will not happen in the game, like. Uh, and so the players want certain things in and other everyone wants a slightly different set of circumstances for the scenario. So like, you know, do mm. you want sharks in the adventure? You don't want sharks in the adventure. And so you bid on that and, you know, the shark, <laughs> the shark token or the shark card. Uh, and uh, if you get if you win the auction, you get to determine what level the sharks will be in the scenario. Uh, so the mm. GM wants certain things to happen. Uh, and everybody else has a, you know, maybe one player is like, oh, I'm a marine biologist. I know all about sharks. Let's, let's throw sharks in. That'll be easy for me. And then the other player is like, well, mm. no, my character is actually a, a, a secretly aware shark. If sharks show up, if that, if, uh, you know, that shows up, then I'll be cursed and the bad thing will happen to me. And like, uh, but nobody knows and nobody's supposed to reveal things. So you're all supposed to, so that could be an interesting mechanic where if there's uncertainty, right, you're trying to guess mm. every, everyone's secret, uh, uh, agenda, um, so that would yes, be, that yeah, could work well. yeah, because that's not I, quite I was, as competitive, right, as Amber, because Amber sounds no. very PvP. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 I mean, it's not all PvP. There are moments you're kind of forced to work together against greater threats, but mm-hmm. there's always this jostling for position and essentially for your father's love mm-hmm. uh, because, because that's Amber. I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking vaguely about maybe using it some way for an initiative system for who goes oh, first in, okay. in the round, but it would probably take too long. Because well, initiative systems need to be fast. Yeah. They, need, they, they should do their job and get out of the way for the main event, which is the combat. Right. Well, unless um, the initiative system is the combat, like who goes first, you know, also, you know, it's just a quick and yeah. the dead, right? So, like, 
Uh, it could also be like an initiative slash advantage system, right? Like it's the mm. same thing. Like you go first or you get a, a plus 10 on your hit roll or you get this bonus or you get a narrative bonus or something like that. So you get to choose, um, you know, you pick your poison, right? Like, uh, yes. and, and uh, uh, so that could, yeah, that could be, that could be an interesting uh, set of choice. And maybe you could uh, gain a benefit at the auction or like get more money to spend essentially is more currency by sacrificing something from your character uh if you really yes. want to win it um so yeah that's I mean, nice yeah um yeah the um, yeah go ahead. i was just going to jump back a step or two because mm. you challenged me to come up with mechanics that oh, i think yeah. could be used and i've come up with two mm. um the first is bluff the, okay the, the bluff mechanic which we, again we did actually use in in the paranoia initiative system where paranoia has a card-based combat system and we went we went with cards because that was what the publisher requested us to to design mm-hmm. um but the idea is every card you know all the cards have effects but separate to that they've got numbers on them um and so you put down a card in front of you for what your initiative value is but you can lie you can just put down any <laughs> and the gm then calls out going um okay 10 9 8 and if you go oh yeah i'm on 9 and you say what you're doing or whatever. If you say, yeah, oh, I'm on I'm on nine, any other player can go, I don't think you are. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't have a nine face down in front of you. And you have to flip your card. And if it's not a nine, you don't go. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're joking for position. And that's that's really fun. And that ties into the other one, which is push your luck, which is do you take an additional risk which may give you a big reward or may result in, in failure or, or a great, a greater failure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that um, mechanic I've seen in a lot of RPGs. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen it used. I yeah. just, I don't think it's part of the common vernacular of, of mechanics. Yeah. I don't think it's broken through into the mainstream yet. And yet it's so fun. Yeah. Push your luck games are, you know, well, it's the heart of gambling apart from anything else, <laughs> but there's, you know, there's so much richness in there and so much that you can do with them. Um, and games, role-playing games should be about risk, not just the simple risk of rolling a dice. And again, this is, look at the way that board games are doing amazing things with dice and dice results and all the rest of that. And take some of that and use that in role-playing games rather than just rolling a dice. Oh, you succeed. Oh, you, succeed, oh, you, oh, you fail. Um, it's, again, we've been doing that since Guy Gax and Arneson. There is mm-hmm. there's so much more that you can do with, with, with dice yeah. um, and dice rolls. And- um, I, I did see... Um- Actually, that speaking of dice as a novel mechanic in of themselves, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how you would describe this mechanic, but Mothership uh, has an interesting system for generating new spaceships. Like you, you know, you're out in oh, deep cool. space uh, where you roll a bunch of d6s and then arrange them into a shape that would look like a spaceship, like in in a vague oh, boxy nice. kind of like cargo. Like Mothership mm. is very much like aliens, like blue collar sci-fi, like. Um, and what you roll the top side determines what kind of compartment it is. Um, so you can kind of allocate like this is engine, this is storage, this is hab, you know, life support or whatever, uh, or weapons. And then, so you can generate, and there's different tables for different types of ships. Uh, but that's how you generate a ship on the quick is just like, you can scan it from your own ship. You, so you know what it's like, how it's laid out like, and it's like this, but you don't know what the uh, surprises are in, in the ship, but that's like a map and uh, uh, an entire s- s- uh, ship generation system. Um, mm. So I don't know if any board games have, I'm sure there's board games that have uh, uh, that kind of mechanic. I'm not sure what you would call that, but like a dice mapping kind of thing. Um, so uh, 
Yeah. No, the only, the, 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 the last type of mechanic, uh, cause I have a novel idea for it, uh, would be tile placement. Ooh. Um, so oh, yes. tile placement, obviously, uh, Carcassonne, uh, been there forever. You, you're, uh, uh, uh King Domino, like just mil- mm. tons and tons of games where you place tiles and based how they're you set, that's how you're scored. So almost all of those are like physical geographic games, right? Like, you know, yes. Carcassonne is literally the landscape, um, King Domino and then patchwork. Is it like a quilt, you know, a, uh, uh, so I was thinking like using a tile placement game in, uh, to represent a more abstract landscape in either mm-hmm. the emotional psychic, like landscape or environment that the characters have to deal. in. so imagine a game where everyone is a psychic and there is this massive psychic, like just energy out there, right? Like it's not just your, mm-hmm. you, you know, like, um, and so you would, the GM would start laying out tiles to describe, Oh, this, this, you know, this place is haunted. It's really dark vibes and, you know, starts placing all these uh, tiles. And in order to players would have to place tiles to activate their powers and based on where they place them, uh, it interacts with the negative tiles in a certain way. So the players are trying to like cleanse or purify the psychic, you know, environment uh, from the evil while the GM is obviously placing their own tiles to uh, make it worse the players are more interesting um so that would be uh that would be more of a collaborative thing right like you're all fighting uh to to and you can make actions to place additional tiles or certain tiles can only be placed if you sacrifice things on your character um mm. or any number of things so um i th- that would be my my big you know galaxy brain thing is like it's it's not a landscape it's a psychic landscape or maybe you could do the same thing for someone's soul like oh are they going to heaven or hell and like you know the 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 mm. inner struggle or something like that. Um, so yeah. Um, cause you could do things yeah, that, like, uh, infection, like, Oh, you place one bad tile, the next turn, all the tiles around it turn bad unless you negate it or something like that. You know? Um, mm. yeah. Now that's, that's really interesting. I mean, that's, that's sparking all sorts of ideas. Yeah. Uh, in my, I'm, I would, I'd probably take a jump to the side and go with something more like a jigsaw puzzle, mm. which again, I think is a massively underused, concept or, or, or mechanic but the idea of assembling a picture or assembling a, a piece uh, oh, or something yeah. the other thing you, you you sparked was um the idea of and i think someone is doing this or has done this recently as a game mm. i have a memory of a conversation can't think of any any names attached to it but a game in which you're basically assembling the investigation wall you know the the pictures oh, of yeah, the suspects yeah, yeah. and the the strings connecting mm-hmm, them and mm-hmm. all the rest of that. And essentially the bits that you pick up along the way in the game, everything has its place on the wall. Um, because who doesn't love that? Just as a, just as a visual representation, building that up as a game. I'm always amazed that, there, you know, there are so many murder mystery games and, and escape room games out there. And I've yet to see one that plays off that. You're building the investigation wall. Yeah. Metaphor. Maybe a logistical thing, to, simply because like you can't include a pin board because you know the, there's no foldable pin boards. At least I'm aware of. Um, True. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, you can't uh, <laughs> make sure you have like a, a three by four foot section of wall that you can hang a pin board to to do this game. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that Something that would be like interesting. It. Um, it's a, you know you mentioned the jigsaw thing that would be really cool because one thing I found out. Um, some artists figured out that, that, you know, this company that makes jigsaw puzzles, they use the same like mm. uh, patterns. They just put different yes. pictures on them. And so like they figured out which patterns, you know, uh, and they, they would like make collage or mashup uh, jigsaw puzzles where they take, Oh, this is, 
half of this is a horse, but half of this is a landscape or like really weird uh, uh, imagery by like mixing and matching from different jigsaw sets. Uh, mm. <laughs> and so you could do like have two jigsaws, one good, one bad. And you're trying to replace the bad one with the good one. Um, and that would be great. Yeah. Or, uh, or tech, you know, print text on the jigsaw pieces. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to know the story until you've got every piece in, in, in place. Oh, but yeah. some of the pieces are the wrong pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there's real potential. There. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that there, there's a lot of fun ideas. And uh, I mean, if anything, like the main thing is like play test your games before you publish them. Like the more you, yes. you got to find your fun. Like, and uh, that is, yeah. Uh, and, and- yeah. And, and the other thing, which I, I advise my game design students, mm. uh, is is play games of types that you have never played before. Oh, yeah. You know, go way outside your comfort zone. Go and watch people. Even if you can't play them, at least watch other people playing them. Go and watch people playing Warhammer. There's loads of interesting ideas about what makes Warhammer mm-hmm. such a, a massive, massive game in, in terms of the market. How does it get its claws into people? Why are people so into it? Um you know, for sports simulations on on your your PC or, or an Xbox or something like that, mm-hmm. you may not be into sports, but those are the best, some of the best selling games every year. Oh, sure. And it's not just because they're sports. It's look at the mechanics. Again, what's working? What's what's making that so interesting? How can you take that and how can you use that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, excellent points. Um, and uh, but when we come back, we'll have uh, some shout outs. And uh, we're back uh, with some shout outs, as always. Uh, so I'd like to begin uh, with uh, this is not a new book by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I read it recently, so it's new to me. Uh, it is Who Fears the Devil? It is a collection of short stories by American author, and this is a real name, uh, Manly Wade Wellman. Uh, it was released in 1963. Uh, originally, uh, but has been republished several times. I read the most recent one from Planet Stories. Uh, and these are uh, about Silver John, uh, who is uh, Manly Wade Wellman's character, uh, who is an Appalachian uh, folk singer and wanderer who travels around the mountains of Appalachia, uh, fighting witches, uh, uh, ghosts, um, and other uh, evil things. It, it, it sort of takes like the ideas of American folklore and ghost stories and sort of combines them with some pulp elements. Like he finds a portal to another universe and like some weird creature coming out of it. He uses the Doppler effect in one uh, story to trick a ghost train, uh, from, uh, taking a woman, um, and uh, a lot of other cool things, but it's, it's this weird eclectic mix of like, you know, fifties and sixties pulp uh, sci-fi and horror and fantasy and like, yeah, just 19th century folklore. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I found it quite interesting. Um, it, it's uh, a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, uh, James. I'm going to kick off with uh, a novel from just a few years ago, The Night Ocean by Paul Lafarge. Paul, who I didn't know, um, died at the start of this year from from cancer, very sadly, uh, aged in his, his early 50s. Um, again, long before his time. The Night Ocean is, is really interesting. It starts off in the present day with a suicide or a possible suicide, but very quickly jumps back in time. Uh, and the meat of, of its narrative is about the relationship between 
um, the famous early science fiction and horror fan R.H. Barlow and the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. Um, Barlow was an early correspondent of Lovecraft's. Barlow was, I think, was 13 when they started corresponding. And the book postulates in some ways that uh, Lovecraft went down to Florida to visit him, which I believe is documented fact, um, and that they may or may not have had a an emotional and possibly even physical relationship. Mm. This is a book about unreliable narrators, essentially. There are several people who tell stories through the course of the book. You can trust, essentially, I would say, probably none of them. Um, that all of them are, you know, deceiving us to, to one level or another. But fundamentally, if you're interested in Lovecraft, this is a side of, of his life that you will probably not know very much about. It's also a fascinating document, and incredibly well-researched document about the early days of fandom, the very early days of fandom, when people who went on to be some of the big names in science fiction in the 50s and 60s and 70s hmm. were starting out as science fiction fans in their teens and their 20s doing, you know, poorly produced fanzines in tiny runs, corresponding with each other by by mail or very, very occasionally meeting up. And the, the overlap between fandom and politics and Lovecraft's politics does come into it a lot. Um, it actually spends a lot of time with Barlow. Barlow was... H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's the the exec the executor of his literary estate and is a controversial figure in was back then a controversial figure in Lovecraft fandom and and I believe remains today. I wasn't entirely satisfied by the book. I I felt it it fudged a number of things and if you don't know what is true and what is not in this particular history, it does not clarify that. Mm. But at the same time, it's a fascinating read and a fascinating insight from somebody who clearly did do the research. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot to to enjoy in there. That um, sounds fascinating. I'll have to put it on my uh, to-read list. Because, yeah, I've, I've um, you know, read some of Lovecraft's biography, uh, you know, some, some background material on him, but, like, yeah, there's so many letters to read uh, of his, mm. and, like, uh, there's there's only so much Lovecraftian scholarship I can I can <laughs> digest in a day, uh, but a novel it would be a good way of uh, uh, yeah, uh, and just as a work of art, yeah. Like mm. um, I, I looking at reviews of it saying this is a biogra biographical novel, not a horror novel. So it is very much. It sounds like very much a drama, not like you know, because yes. yes. a lot it's, of it is yeah. about horror. It is not a horror novel. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of things that use Lovecraft, like use him, be like, oh, he knew the truth and uh, he was a fool or whatever, you know, like the Laundry Files, for example, uh, uh, references love. They actually have a short story about Lovecraft encountering Lovecraftian horrors. Uh, I think it's called Equus, the Charles uh, Strauss wrote. Um, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, very an actual like realistic depiction of him would be a very interesting uh, thing to read. Um, my next shout out is a storytelling game. It is called a uh, a town called Malice, uh, a Nordic horror story game uh, from Monkey Fun Studios. Uh, this is very much um, it's an it's a focus of Nordic noir uh, things like things like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, uh, and also isolated small town horror like Thirty Days of Night, the Thing, and Salem's Lot. Uh, so mechanically, it is very inspired by Fiasco. Uh, but it's, it's about a, you're all the players collaborate to make up a messed up town. Um, and basically there's a town, an event, 
uh, and a body. And so the town is about to hold the event, but then the game, the, the, the storyline of the game begins with the body being discovered. And then, um, so like when I played it, uh, uh, actually Jeff, uh, Barber, uh, creator of blue planet ran it, uh, for me, Maddie and, uh, another friend, uh, and we made up this fishing town, you know, it's always called malice and it was holding a festival to help bring, you know, new people in and, uh, you know, body was found and it turns out the, the pillars of the town running it were doing horrible things that may or may not be supernatural. Um, and it ended in murder and, uh, uh bloodshed and, uh, you know, I, I do remember my character was the 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 cannery owner who uh, was doing all these horrible things to keep the business running, and I said, "Well, the ta- the the darkness is a job creator," you know, uh, which is <laughs> everyone was like, "Oh my god, Ross! I didn't think you could make such a horrible character." It's like, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it was a lot of uh, uh, fun, um, and you could make up all kinds of messed up little towns. Uh, and, uh, if you like twin peaks, uh, uh, as well, like that, that's, you know, uh, another influence. So, um, yeah, it's worth checking out. Uh, James. Cool. I'm, I'm going to shout out die by Kieran Gillen, uh, which is a, it was a comic series that ran a few years ago is now collected into, I believe five volumes. Um, and it is, Kieran himself describes it as the D&D cartoon for goths. It's basically about a group of friends who in the early 80s gather for one of their 16th birthdays and disappear and reappear two, year late, two years later in the middle of the night in, in a wood. One of them is missing an arm and none of them can say or will say what the hell has happened to them and one of them is missing. This is not a major spoiler. All of this is literally within the first kind of half of the first issue. 25 years later, they get back together. Um, there's a kind of a reunion. The dice, it's all about the special dice. Uh, there was a set of special dice that were going to be a birthday present during the, the, the original game. The dice reappear. They are sucked back into this world. It, and it's a fantasy world. It's, a, it's, a fantasy, it's the fantasy RPG they were playing in. The world is called Die because it's a 20-sided world. And that's a pretty strong setup. <laughs> yeah. And Kieran is, I mean, if you're going to do a story like this, Kieran is absolutely a safe pair of hands for this. This is a guy who's written Thor. He's written the X-Men. He's written Darth Vader. He, he knows graphical storytelling, but he's also a diehard long-time role-playing gamer and started out as a, as a games journalist doing video game reviews. And my God, he can write because the second issue will take you by surprise. And the third issue will hit you around the back of the head with a cricket bat just comes completely out of left field, and you go, you did what? (laughs) I'm not going to spoil it, because Mm -hmm. you deserve for that moment where there are two moments in in the third issue. Um, I will say that it's set in something that looks very much like the World War I trenches, but when you realize who's fighting, it's, it's, it's almost like a punch to the stomach. And and then you kind of you work out, oh, oh my God, that's what he's doing with this series. And he just builds on it and builds on it. And it is abs- it is magnificent. The whole thing is is so strong and so good. Kieran is a friend of mine, um, so I am biased. But <laughs> I was just, you know, every time I'd get a new set of issues, I'd just go, oh, my God, man, this is – I really hope you stick the landing. He sticks the landing. The ending is great. 
Um, they kickstarted a role-playing game. I haven't. Um, I've read drafts of the role-playing game. I haven't seen the finished thing yet, but apparently it's really, really strong. The other thing is, I don't know how much I can talk about. It. I know he has sold the media rights, the possibility ah. of a TV series based on this, and I think the my hope is that the success of the D and D movie and the fact that it just shows that oh, everyone yeah. understands role playing games these days and that they're commercial. Because I would kill to see a die TV series. I really would. I think it would translate extremely well to the TV, and I think it would just be great. Amazing. Um, and uh, that, yeah. That's kind of what I have to say about that. Uh, uh, published by Image, Kieran, uh, Kieran Gillen, and or uh, illustrated by Stephanie, painted by Stephanie Hands. Hmm. Uh, and I'm looking at the Kickstarter for the RPG. Uh, there, it's being put out by Rowan Rook and Descartes, which is Grant Hewitt's uh, company, I believe. Uh, they mm-hmm. put out Spire and uh, Heart, the City Beneath. Uh, the Die RPG uses original rule system uh, written by Kieran, uh, designed from the ground up to power emotional stories of pulp action. It's been playtested for five years, so it looks like he did find the fun. <laughs> looks oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he's, he takes this stuff very seriously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I will have to keep my eye out for when the uh, book comes out. I'm not sure if it's out yet or not. Um, so uh, something to look forward to uh, to investigate in, uh, for future episodes. Uh, but yeah, no, that sounds really cool. Uh, I uh, I think Caleb's told me about the comic as well, and he really liked it as well. So I'll have to actually uh, sit down and read it. Um, mm-hmm. My uh, next shout-out is a, a game, and actually a board game uh, that I got to play recently. Now, uh, I did get a review copy of this uh, some months ago, and I, you know, it takes a while to learn a board game like this. It is called Terracotta Army. Uh, it is published by Board and Dice. And it is a big weighty uh, game with of worker placement because basically, if you're not familiar with the the terracotta army uh, in ancient China, uh, the you know an emperor died, and uh, artisans built a great army of terracotta statues of you know of warriors to you know protect and guard him in the afterlife uh, in his tomb. And so you're you're one of these artisans, and you're trying to build as many uh, statues as possible of different warriors. Uh, to fill to put in the emperor's tomb, and basically you get scored on, uh, you know where you you know the number of war each warrior is worth so many points, uh, but there's also uh, a lot of different ways to like there are inspectors that go along this grid, uh, and uh, you know statues that are on that are being inspected get bonus points, and so uh, it has a rondelle to uh, for worker placement, so like. When you place a worker on one slot on the wheel, uh, think of like hours on a clock, then there's like three actions you do, but you can move two of those wheels, two of those uh, to change which actions uh, are available on that. So like if you if, you know, oh, wait, Bob took those actions. Well, I can pay a coin to move so that one of those actions is available to me. Um, it's it's quite interesting. Uh, a lot of complexity to it. Uh, it it's uh, you know it took us like three or four hours to get through a game with four players for the first time. But you know that was us learning the game. Um, I definitely want to play it again. It's the for me it's like about as complex as a board game I want it to be uh, because uh, there are some games that are so complex that I'm like oh god this is. Uh, I felt like there's a lot of things to do, but I didn't feel like I had to do three actions in a row in order to get points. I was getting points every round and I didn't have to like, you know, uh, heaven and nails a game. I felt like, well, oh, oh, I have to do this and this and this, and then maybe I'll get some points. So this one, it's like, I'm getting points. Am I just getting as much as I, you know, as many points as I should be in order to win? 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really fun game. Uh, two to four players, uh, you know, go on YouTube and watch a good tutorial of it before you, uh, uh, play, uh, the, the ending score mechanics are a little complex. Uh, but yeah, if you like big weighty board games with really cool minis, they have like little plastic minis of all the types of, uh, 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 sold terracotta soldiers that you put in the army, um, in the tomb. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very fun. Uh, so yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's been very well reviewed. I mean, it's 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 not an easy game. It's quite a heavy game from reputation. Oh yeah, I haven't played it myself. I haven't even seen it played. But yes, it's it's getting good notices in the press. Hmm. Um, and you, um, yeah, you had one more, I believe. Um, I I did. It's, I mean, part of the joy of of doing Ludo Narrative Dissidents with uh, Ross and and our third our third hand Greg Stolze is that I get to read an awful lot of role-playing games that either I read in the past and have put to one side or that I hadn't previously come across. Um, and I thought about talking about one that we're actually about to record the podcast for in a day or two, Tales from the Loop. But I think actually I'm going to flash back to a game that <laughs> I've known for about 20 years that we did in a recent episode, which is Dread, which, mm. would, which Ross, you referred to briefly earlier on. Because mm-hmm. um, Dread is a horror game that just ditches all the conventional mechanics that you would expect to find in a horror role-playing game and goes, get a copy of Jenga. <laughs> and it's genius. It's just absolute genius as things, as you try to accomplish tasks within the narrative, anything that there's a risk, you have to take a block out of the Jenga tower and put it on the top. So as the game goes on, the structure becomes more and more precarious, and therefore your position becomes more and more, your situation just becomes worse and worse and more and more Mm -hmm. likely to just collapse into into chaos. And, you know, the person who tips the tower or who who knocks the tower over at the end, uh, not at, at the end, their character immediately leaves the game. Not necessarily dead, they may flee, they may disappear, whatever it is. But that, I mean, talking about push-your-luck mechanics, that's push-your-luck. <laughs> you have to. You have to take the brick. But you're aware that every time you do, you are increasing the risk, not only for yourself, but for everyone else. Yeah. And that's basically, it's what I was saying about Baron Munchausen. It's not just, you know, you could boil it down to a page or two of rules. They've published it as a book. But the rest of the book is essentially just brilliant advice for running horror role-playing games. Mm-hmm. Really, really smart stuff. Um and one of my great regrets in running Hogshead Publishing is there are there are two major games that I was pitched and turned down. One of which um, is Unknown Armies, which Greg was one of the designers <laughs> on, um, which I stand by actually because I think the draft I was pitched was not quite properly baked. It wasn't. It didn't feel finished to me, and I stand by that. But I was also pitched Dread, and for various reasons, I, I turned it down. Um, and I wish I hadn't. I wish I'd published it because it's so smart and so clever and so immediate and and just great. It's such an easy concept. Everyone has access to it. You know, if you phone around your role-playing group and and say, someone bring a copy of Jenga, someone's going to have a copy of Jenga. Oh, sure. You know, you bring it, it's not hard to to get. It's a lot easier to get a copy of Jenga than it was to get a set of polyhedral dice in the Mm -hmm. 1970s, I can tell you. Yeah. And... It will give you a fantastic evening of play. Dread is not a long-term, it's not a campaign-based game. It's not something you're going to pull out every single evening. 
But for one or two sessions, it's just a bravura piece of design. <laughs> and as a text, if you're looking for a text for some, you know, is it possible to do a role-playing game that abandons the previous idea, almost everything that role-playing games have done up to this point, and does something completely different? Yes. And it's a triumph. Yeah. Uh, Dread is great because it captures the horror tension of like, we're all in this together, but boy, I hope that you you you're the one that gets eaten by the monster. Like, I please That's fuck exactly up, it. please fuck up, please fuck up. I I don't want to die. Like, uh, and if it's killing you, it's not killing me. Like, yeah, it's yeah, no, it, it's great. Um, and it's a very it's once you understand it, yeah, you you could run it anywhere. You can uh, you don't need it has questionnaires and things to help flush out the role playing aspects of it, but you don't need to. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, one of these games every time it's like, oh, interesting, you know, role-playing game design. Well, have you heard of Dread? Like, there it is. There's the good design. <laughs> There's, the- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, 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 quite fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you haven't played it at this point, go ahead and get it. it it's, it's definitely worth it. Um, finally, um, definitely. I would like to mention, uh, Jury Duty, which is a new show, uh, on a new streaming platform called Freebie, I think, um, it, which is free, like Tubi, um, and it's a comedy show, uh, which is, uh, it's a fake trial, a fake civil lawsuit between two people. Everyone's an actor except one guy. One guy is told, you gotta come in for jury duty. Oh, uh, guess what? We gotta be sequestered. And, um, he is just navigating this as all these people. And it's not about making fun of this guy. He is like the straight man trying to be, and everyone else around him is just, you know, uh, very ridiculous. In fact, they even get the, the actual real actor, James Marsden, uh, who, uh, probably you, you, you saw him as Cyclops <laughs> in the X-Men movies. Uh, he's recently like the, uh, the main human in, uh, the Sonic movie. So he's like, you know, got some comedic chops and he plays himself as he gets, you know, uh, collared in, uh, for jury duty. And, uh, (laughs) it's, it's just like ridiculous, like, uh, uh, you know, deadpan comedy as all these people are, uh, losing their minds doing this very farcical trial. But the main guy is just like, man, this is really weird. Isn't it? Like, uh, I don't really get this. Like, uh, and so yeah, there's six episodes out. Um, and yeah, it's got only an eight episode series. So I'm looking forward to the finale, but yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it sounds great. It reminds me of another reality TV show that mm. I think only aired in, in the States uh, with the same premise mm. that the whole thing was a setup apart from one person who wasn't in on it. And it was, I can't remember what they were contesting to do. I think it was potentially a, a lot of money. And it did. It really did not go the way they thought it was going to. I think they thought that they were just going to portray this guy as a schlub and kind of make fun of him. And the audience really started rooting for him, and they had to rewrite it on the fly. <laughs> and I'm completely, completely blanking on the name of it. I mean, there are documentaries about this show. It's huh. like that. Um, I'm. I, I wanted to say it's the biggest loser. It's not the biggest loser. That's one about weight loss. Which oh god, um, I am. I have made the mistake of Googling American reality TV shows from the, the early 2000s, and there's just there's so many of them. I'm I've, As we've been talking, I've only got as far as the Cs, and I haven't found it. Um, but yeah, so it's it's not an original idea, but it sounds like a really interesting twist on it. Yeah, no, it's it's just it's just fun. Um, like 
it's I, I do like uh, uh, shows like this, especially that sort of blur the line between reality and going back to, you know, King and Yellow Carcosa between reality and unreality. Mm. Uh, a recent one I watched was Nathan Felder's The Rehearsal. Uh, where it's like, oh, you will, oh, you have yeah. this big awkward thing coming up. Well, well, let me help you by helping you rehearse for it. So you want to tell your friend the secret? Okay, well, you want to tell them at this uh, uh, bar? Okay, we'll build the bar on a set and we'll hire actors to portray everyone, and we can just rehearse it until you're comfortable doing it. And so he builds a, you know, he has Hollywood level resources, so he builds a perfect replica of the bar. He hires actors that look like the the regulars at the bar. Um, it's, and it just gets, and that's where it starts and it just gets weirder from there. Cause you're not sure how much of this is scripted. How much of this are the real people? Like, are we rehearsing? Is this happening? Like what's going on? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I find the, these uh, kind of shows very amusing, but, um, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's it for our shout outs. Uh, so, uh, I'm on the a, Joe Schmo show. The Joe Schmo show. There we That's go. That's what it was called. Sorry, finally got to the Jays. The Joe Schmo show. They did two seasons. Okay. Um, look at it. I won't. I won't bore you with it now. Look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. T- uh, take a look. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, again, thank you so much uh, for popping on the show, James. Uh, and what was oh, the name? God, of it's your... been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the book is called Everybody Wins. It's published by Aconite. Um, it is available in in the US and probably by the time this goes out, Australia and New Zealand as well. Plus, of course, the UK. I believe there are foreign editions in the works. Cool. Um, yeah, it is. I've seen a PDF of the book. It is very. Uh, it is a beautiful looking book. Uh, I've read a little of it. It, it, yeah, it, it's, uh, quite, a, a insightful read on the history of board game mechanics, especially because you're focusing like so many board game history books are just like at the beginning, there was monopoly and the, the 19th century and uh, then there was battleship and, uh, and now we have, you know, clue, um, you know, they're, they're very basic level, right. Or they're like 19th century board game designs that are interesting, but like have no significance now, at least in terms of, you know, what they influence. And uh, this is actually about focusing on like, how did we get to Katad? What happened after Katad? And like that kind of thing, uh, because there does seem to be that divide between like, I played Monopoly as a kid to like people who are like board game fans. Like, <laughs> and there's this divide, like, wait, bo- board games can be not just clue and Monopoly, you know, like, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big divide. And hopefully if you read this book, you're like, oh yeah, there's all this cool stuff. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, again. And, uh, coming up in, uh, I don't know exactly when, uh, Caleb and I are going to be doing a game designers workshop. Caleb's going to give us some updates on, uh, his playtesting of a uh, second edition, uh, red markets. So, uh, we'll have that out in a couple weeks. Uh, but anyways, uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you later. Mm-hmm.